Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Film. I am your host, Joel Cherney. Today I'll be speaking with Liam Burke, author of the book, The Comic Book Film Adaptation, Exploring Modern Hollywood's Leading Genre, published in 2015 by the University Press of Mississippi. We talk about how the unexpected success of the X-Men film in 2000 opened up comic books as a source for movies in a way never before seen. He also argues that this has transformed the comic book film into an actual separate film genre. We also talk about how Marvel in particular has experienced great success in the modern motion picture industry. Welcome to Liam Burke. Hi, Liam. It's great to talk to you. It's great to be here. It's great to talk to you as well. I was a comic book reader growing up. I a little older than you, I think, and I remember even the original Batman TV series from the 1960s. But I also remember the, 19, the late 1970s Superman films and then the 1989 Batman movie series that started then. But your book mostly revolves around the concept of a, an entire genre, your, your, your belief that we've now reached the point where comic book film is an entire genre in, uh, by itself. But let's start with some background. What is What are your educational and writing experiences? Like most uh, people probably listen to this podcast or interested in this book, I was a comic book fan uh, in my teens and kind of fell out of interest in it. And I went off and I did a, a Bachelor of Science uh, in biochemistry, of all things. It did not lead to any lab accidents that imbued <laughs> me with any special powers. So pretty disappointed with science. I did a Master's in Film Studies at the Houston School of Film and Digital Media at the National University of Ireland, Galway. And that was a great year. We had to write a thesis. And, uh, you know, as a former uh, comic book fan or reader, I was probably still a fan but not a reader. And this is the year was 2005, 2006. I said, okay, I've got to do a thesis. And there seems to be a lot of these comic book movies. Why are they back? So I wrote a, 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 a short thesis, 20,000 words, which became the basis of my first book superhero movies and then I went off to work in the industry I worked for a lot of uh, arts organizations and film festivals Uh, in particular I worked for the Irish Film and Television Academy which would be the equivalent of the Academy Awards in the US organizing their annual televised award ceremony as well as other work with master classes and events but I I got a deal to do a book superhero movies with uh, Pocket Essentials at the time for which I interviewed Stan Lee and that kind of reignited my interest in kind of scholarship, and I secured a PhD back with the Houston School. I went back and did a PhD to expand my master's thesis, and that became the basis of this book. And then on, on the strength of you know, being a PhD student, I started teaching, uh, made myself fairly central to the faculty, so that when I finished my PhD, I had an ongoing role there at uh, the Houston School of Film and Digital Media. Worked there for a couple of years, taught there. I ran their, their film studies course, their BA film studies course. And then I moved to Australia about three years ago to Melbourne, where I now work at Swinburne University of Technology, 
where I'm a media studies lecturer and discipline leader there. So I teach cinema and screen studies units, uh, the cinema and screen studies major here. I also run a kind of a media industries major. So not just film and TV, I also teach a comic studies unit and a whole range of units. Where are you actually from originally? I'm from uh, Cork in the south of Ireland, so a small town called Fomoy, which isn't really noted for much other than the fact that Michael Flatley, the famous Irish dancer, lives there. It's about the only claim to fame uh, for Fomoy. But, uh, yeah, so, no, I'm from Fomoy, but uh, went to university in Cork and then up to Galway. And we were talking before we started, um, speaking of science fiction, the concept that you and I can be half a world away from each other and yet carry on a conversation with no technical problems and have it crystal clear and all because of technology. You know, it's a superpower in and of itself. It sort of collapses those distances. Then sometimes the science catches up with the science fiction. So, yeah, it's not unusual, frankly, from a lot of the people I've talked to that much of their school research has led to a bigger project where they've been able to write an entire book. And in your case, frankly, I don't know how, how long your original uh, d- uh, work was, but your book is quite detailed and in even for a uh, scholarly study. I mean, usually we're talking about, you know, sometimes as little as 200 pages, but you've really been able to put together a book. And the nice thing is you've got a lot of great pictures in here and and ways to visualize. So um, it's clear that uh, your publisher, University of uh, Mississippi, um, University Press of Mississippi, definitely was able to represent your work so well. Yeah, I'm very happy to work with University Press of Mississippi they are generally regarded as kind of the leading comic scholars press. And when I looked, when the book, when I was planning the book, I looked at my shelf and I looked at all the books I had and their name came up more often than any other uh, press. And I said, well, if there's anywhere I'd like the book to be published, it's with them. And they were interested and we worked out a deal. And uh, I'm really happy with the, the, the volume of images and the quality of images because it really helps round out the explanations and, and illustrate, you know, the points I'm trying to get across. And of course, it's got a very colorful uh, cover, which makes it stand out in the, in the same way. But it's perfect for the genre. I mean, the concept of a comic book—you expect color and you expect brightness—and and that's exactly what they were able to do. And as I say, I point this out because so many of the authors that uh, do books on our in our, on our series—they're great books, but. Yours stands out for a variety of ways, which is great for 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 you as yeah, far as... I was very lucky with the cover. The cover was done by an Irish artist, a uh, Cork artist, in fact, called Will Sliney. And Will is an up-and-comer at Marvel Comics, and he was due to sign an exclusive contract with Marvel. And you know, part of that contract is you, know, you can only do superhero work for Marvel. So this is the last piece of superhero work he did before signing with Marvel, and now he uh, draws their Spider-Man 2099 book and does a really good job there. So I was very lucky to have Will uh, provide this cover uh, at the time that he did because he's certainly an up-and-comer and going from strength to strength. Oh, that's great. Now, you talk about the early parts of some of the initial comic book uh, films, even mentioning briefly the the serials, the Superman serials, but and you do mention, you do go back as far as what happened in the post-Star Wars era where uh, Mar- uh, Warner Brothers decided to bring out a Superman film. 
Um, and then, of course, that was a series that uh, went four films, although the last one was much later than the first three. And then, of course, the Michael Keaton, the famous Michael Keaton uh, Batman films that started uh, that group. But then, of course, that died out. Most people say, obviously, and it deserved to die out with the last one, the Batman and Robin. But then things really changed a great deal, and you specifically point at the first X-Men film from 2000. That was a success that you indicated or that, that believed that most people didn't think it was going to be that successful, and yet, and yet it was. So what happened that made this movie so important in retrospect to the eventual success of later comic book films in, in, in going forward? There had been a lot of attempts to adapt comics to cinema in the past. You pointed to, to many of them. But there really hadn't been a sustained period of production. There would be dips. Uh, people would get interested, try and replicate the success. But it wouldn't become uh, an ongoing trend. X-Men really signals uh, a modern trend that we're still living through. There has been sustained production of comic books for the last 15 years, since X-Men in 2000. What X-Men perhaps did differently was, first of all, Outside of you know fan culture, X-Men were not particularly well-known. Their profile had been boosted by an early 90s animated series, but they weren't particularly well-known. Uh, so it took what might be considered a niche property. It wasn't Batman, it wasn't Superman, it wasn't even Spider-Man, and made a blockbuster movie out of it. But it didn't hide the fact that it was based on a comic. A lot of comic movies at that time were ashamed, particularly in the post-Batman and Robin era, to signal the fact that they were based on a comic book. So you think of a film like Blade, based on the Marvel Comics character. It was very much pitched as an action horror. This was an unashamed comic book movie that uh, took its source material seriously, had a modicum of fidelity to that source material, uh, is in, you know, it wasn't 100% favorable, but it was pretty close. And uh, it brought a, a, a sort of a, and it broke box office records, not in terms of the biggest opening weekend ever, but at the time it was the biggest opening weekend for a non-sequel. So, uh, and that surprised everyone because no one really expected that. And so, you know, Hollywood uh, is a kind of, uh, you know, there's a herd mentality there. Something seems to be making sense. People want to replicate that model. And sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. After the success of, of Batman in 1989, people tried to replicate that model. And they looked at the movie and they saw a gothic Avenger set in a retro setting. So you had a lot of retro heroes like The Rocketeer, The Shadow. Those films didn't uh, ascend to the same heights. And you had a lot of gothic Avengers, characters like Darkman. At the Crow, and then subsequently Spawn. Again, none of these films match the success. What was successful about X-Men, or what sustained the trend, was the two years later when Spider-Man came out, it broke records again. So you had an amplification. And two successes in quick succession was enough to uh, really su sustain this trend. Arguably, had X-Men followed by the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, for instance, and that had bombed, that would have uh, seen this trend uh, finish up much more quickly. But one success is followed by another success, and the few failures notwithstanding, these films have constantly raised the bar in terms of what people can expect at the box office. Uh, but, you know, Dark Knight after Batman broke records, and everyone thought that was the top a billion dollar superhero movie. A couple of years later, uh, Avengers changes our understanding of what the, the upper ceiling is for a superhero movie or a comic book movie. Yeah, I used to. I spent most of my life in Cleveland, Ohio, so I do remember when Avengers was being filmed in Cleveland. There, much of the some of the the 
sequences were, were filmed in Cleveland and they've actually gone back to Cleveland once or twice since for some of the other films. I think the second Captain America film was parts of it were filmed in Cleveland, Ohio. And, uh, yeah, I just to, to this day, I can remember with all that was going on and how the people of the area, you know, what it was exciting. Cause by that point, uh, the Avengers was ending what was considered to be the initial Marvel films that came out, um, after the success of X-Men and after the success of the first Spider-Man series. And um, so, yes, I, I can see, you can easily see by that point that people weren't even thinking about the fact that they were quote-unquote comic book movies. They just knew they were successful. It was a successful series of movies. Yeah, and once a train, a train, once a train continues for long enough, you have to ask the question, and it's the question I posed in my book is, is it still a trend or is it now a fully-fledged genre? And I'm content in the book that it is a fully-fledged genre in that it has a distinct production history with unique and readily identifiable conventions and that films and filmmakers and audiences recognize those conventions and films are made in those modes and they're expected in that mode. So when I was looking into that, I needed to kind of truly understand, is this a genre? And I could say it's a genre, but that doesn't necessarily support the case. So what I did was I carried out a lot of audience research, paper surveys, cinema screenings of uh, comic book movies. And I talked to a lot of uh, comic book creators to kind of get their sense about whether this was becoming a fully-fledged genre. And, you know, there was a certain amount of trepidation, but there is this sort of growing recognition that these films are part of a larger tradition and that they recognize each other. So, for instance, The Dark Knight works because it subverts your expectations of what should happen in a comic book movie. Um, Watchmen, if it works at all, it works because it's a parody of pre-existing comic book movies. That's also true of something like Kick-Ass. So that there is this sort of tradition of a kind of a vigilante or outsider character who operates in a world that has a heightened reality that's populated by distinctly comic book imagery. That could be everything from a color pop to uh, certain costuming, and to, you know, a certain choice of effects and things like that. And these comic book movies aren't just uh, solely defined by superhero movies, although, you know, much like, say, the Westerner or the uh, Private Eye in film noir, they are certainly synonymous with that genre. But there are comic book movies like 300, like The Spirit, like you know, Tintin even, that kind of fall in that sort of uh, larger comic book movie wheelhouse. You know, more recently, things like, you know, even Scott Pilgrim and stuff, would be described as comic book movies, but there's no superhero to be seen. And because um, one of the things that it's, that I always was was on, you know, dissatisfied with going back to the first real attempt with the Superman films and then the later Batman films is that there was no real sense that they were trying to create a series per se. They were just trying to make the next movie. I mean, the first two Superman movies have a certain. Um, combination because of they were originally meant to be uh, made at the same time and then the first two Batman movies both featured the same basic uh, with you know with production with Michael Keaton and both but then in both cases the series just started to peter off into just comedy and not much else and the concept of whatever the superhero was behind them was was certainly long gone by the time you get to the third and of course the fourth movies in each case as we've already pointed out but 
as you say, things changed with X-Men. And I do remember seeing X-Men when it first came out. And I was, I had never read X-Men growing up. I was a DC person. And of course that back then it was a, you either read DC or Marvel. And of course, Marvel was always the more popular, but for whatever reason I stuck with DC. And so X-Men, um, but you're right. I still remember reading about how popular, like you've just pointed out, there was a series during the you know period of time where certain writers were so popular on X-Men that they had just a fan following. So I can imagine that that film, it could have gone completely, you know, if the fans had turned on it right at the beginning, it could have ended the whole thing. But clearly the studio said, we've got to do this right. But it is interesting, uh, this fidelity, this faithfulness to the source material. Back in 1989, uh, Tim Burton, when he was making Batman film, there was massive outcry from the fans. The casting of Michael Keaton was perceived to be a move towards a more comedic Batman film. He, had that, up to that point, was best known for Mr. Mom and Beetlejuice, both of which are comedies, and they felt that this was a return to the camp crusader of Adam West. And Tim Burton dismissively said, I can't care about what one fan would say. And he's right in that respect, because, of course, in order for these films to be blockbuster successes the necessary audience would have been much, much, much greater than comic book readership. But what he hadn't really accounted for was the fact that comic book fans are a virtual community. They were, through fanzines, letter calls, meeting up at conventions, they knew how to network. And, how, and they used that sort of virtual network to start a letter writing campaign, to criticize the perceived humorous direction of uh, this Batman film, which hadn't been released yet, of course. And that roused the interest of mainstream press, so it was on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. And it was linked to the uh, box office, the, not a box office claim, the share price decline of Warner Brothers. So they said, whoa, 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 we need to keep these comic book fans, finite as they might be as a group, happy because they have the ability to sway larger opinion. And so they cut together a suitably dark Batman trailer, uh, showed it around the conventions, and uh, the, tide, the tide turned. Similarly, on X-Men, by the time you get to 2000, actually, before we even talk about X-Men, I mean, Batman and Robin was really the first film to incur the wrath of online fans. So by the time uh, Batman and Robin comes out in 1997, uh, these comic book fans have moved away from fanzines and letter calls and moved to, uh, they become the webmasters of this new digital age, while most of us were still struggling to find our email addresses, these guys had totally annexed and reshaped the web and their images, bringing the practices that they had used in comic book fandom to the web. And by doing that, they were able to, uh, to really have their voices heard and amplified their opinions, even though they were still a small subset of the necessary audience. So it became essential for filmmakers to get those fans on site because they could use them like an unlimited press corps. There's an anecdote from the production of X-Men whereby a young fan snuck onto the set at night, went through the material, saw the word laser written on something, went online and wrote about the fact that there was a laser in it. There was no laser in the film. The, the, the word laser he had seen was just a, a piece of branding, but the, the producers were happy with that. They described that as the good misinformation you want, that sort of fan enthusiasm. They didn't try and shut it down. They didn't try and... Uh, stifle it. They embraced it. And the successful comic book movies, whether it's you know, Spider-Man in 2002 to the virtual marketing campaign that followed or preceded The Dark Knight, the ones that have uh, they've learned the need to placate this long-standing fan base. And you see that through the 
uh, increasingly uh, sort of what we would call them uh, kind of performative presentations you get at Comic-Con, San Diego Comic-Con. I mean, San Diego Comic-Con is a big event, but 8,000 people sitting in Hall H is not going to make an iota of difference on uh, opening weekend for a blockbuster. But uh, 8,000 people are some of the most media-savvy people you'll ever meet. They're tweeting, they have blogs, they have Facebook statuses, and their goodwill permeates. And a film like Iron Man, which people didn't expect a lot from, when they presented 2007's Comic-Con, it created a sort of a word of mouth. These digital ripples peaked not just fan but mainstream interest around the world. So by, by the time the film was released one year later in the summer of 2008, it became a uh, blockbuster success, a huge opening weekend for a character that was little known a few years earlier. I mean, 10 years ago, very few people knew who Iron Man was. Today, you'd, be far, you'd struggle to find anyone who hasn't heard of Iron Man and Tony Stark and the rest of the Avengers. I remember... When you know, I, I I didn't follow as much the background of X Men before it came out. I think it was one of those things where I wanted to see it because I wanted to see what 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 it was going to be. I, I'm sure I didn't see it the opening weekend, but I did see it reasonably early. But the funny, the other thing, and I was listening to a couple interviews. Uh, Patrick Sir Patrick Stewart's been doing interviews because of his television show that he's doing in the states for Stars Network, and he happened to be on a couple of different shows where he was talking about X Men. And how he really didn't want to do it because he had just come off um, Star Trek, The Next Generation, and he'd been doing the movies and things, and he just wasn't sure. And yet, when you think about it, he was, he is the perfect Professor X. I mean, there's no question, and I can imagine that there wasn't a single uh, person who, speaking of casting, that as soon as they heard he was Professor X, there probably wasn't as many complaints as there were when Michael Keaton first was announced for Batman. Exactly, and what you have is this, uh, the casting of Patrick Stewart and uh, Ian McKellen at the time was equivalent to the casting of Alec Guinness as Obi-Wan Kenobi. What might have otherwise been dismissed as a kind of a schlocky product was given a modicum of credibility through these royal Shakespearean actors, and so it upped the ante. But of course, uh, Patrick Stewart looked like uh, Professor X, and he was a fan favourite through his work as uh, Picard on Star Trek. So it, it kept those fans happy. And there was a lot of measures to try and keep those fans happy. Obviously, they were a bit confused. as to Why was a tall Australian playing the short Canadian Wolverine? But there were little measures, throwaway gags about the yellow costumes and why they weren't there. But you just, you just see this need to sort of bring the, bring the fans on board. And Brian Singer, the director of, of that X-Men film and many of the subsequent X-Men films, is a big social media uh, advocate. He's constantly tweeting updates from the, from the set of the upcoming X-Men apocalypse, and that creates kind of, you know, assuming that the images and the content is received well, it can create very positive word of mouth. And fans, people expect to be able to participate. Now, we are in a participatory culture. People want to and expect to be able to interact. Hashtag tweet, talk to your stars, see them in person at, at conventions. And uh, comic book movies generally were at the vanguard of this transition to a more participatory culture. I mean, if there's one thing that fans like, it's fidelity, faithfulness to the source material. I always use the Batman series as an example. The Batman series in 89, you had a Batman who killed people, which everyone thought was at odds with the character. You had a, a Batman who freely gave away his secret identity. Uh, Vicky Vale finds out very early on. He seems slightly demented, 
the, the famous sequence of Michael Keaton saying, do you want to get nuts? Come on, let's get nuts. And he's also not particularly compassionate. If you remember the opening of Batman in 89, a family are, are being mugged, and he doesn't intercept, intercept the togs till after they've robbed the family, which isn't really a very compassionate thing to do. So what was... Well, then if you compare that to 2005 when Batman begins, suddenly you start to see a Batman that's more in keeping with the cop character. Never kills anyone. Vehemently opposed to using guns or any kind of uh, excessive violence. He is compassionate. You know, he's just, there's often shots of him giving his coat to a, a homeless man, giving a piece of technology to a kid. And, you know, he doesn't give away his secret identity that freely. And he also sublimates his desire. He appreciates Rachel Dawes as a childhood sweetheart, but he won't give into that relationship much like a Western gunslinger, he knows he, his higher calling for justice prevents him from really being part of the community he defends. Whereas uh, in the 89 version, Batman sleeps with Vicky Bale on their first date, which, uh, you know, that's a stylistic choice, obviously, and Tim Burton would have made, but it moved the character away from the ones that people were familiar with in the source material. And I dealt with Danny O'Neill, the longtime editor and writer on Batman for this book, and he uh, let me have a look at the Bat Bible, which was his editorial guide. He would circulate to the many writers and artists working on Batman and saying, this is Batman. These are the consistencies. And point by point, when I look through the Bat Bible, and I talk about this in the book, Christopher Nolan's film met the criteria. It would have been considered canon, whereas at most points, the Tim Burton film failed to meet the mark. And it just speaks here. I'm not saying that Christopher Nolan was following some sort of DC Comics doctrine, but the fact that he had that sort of... Uh, I don't even want to use the word respect, but just an awareness of the source material and trying to tally with that source material just shows a, a, a different mindset that we didn't have in uh, earlier attempts to adapt comic books to the screen. Well, and the other thing about Christopher Nolan and not only the, the, the regular DC Batman, but also he clearly understood what Frank Miller was doing with Batman too because there are shots in... I can think of in at least the first movie and probably in other ones, which are direct. You, you could look, you could find the comic book where the same shot appears. Yeah. It's like he used the comic books as storyboards. Exactly. I mean, there's the, he cherry picks the best. So there's a lot of Frank Miller in there. There's a little bit of Alan Moore, particularly in the sequel with the killing joke being an influence on Heath Ledger's The Joker. A lot from Jeff Loeb. And his runs like uh, The Long Halloween, which gets into the backstory of uh, Harvey Dent and how he became Two-Face. And there's a good bit of Denny O'Neill as well. The framing device of uh, a young Bruce Wayne falling down the well and then reflecting, you know, and that becomes kind of a framing device for how he reflects on uh, his origin. That came from a Batman story called uh, The Man Who Falls, which was Batman... uh, as a young Bruce Wayne falling down the well, but the adult Batman reflects on that incident and all the major milestones up to that moment, including his training, including becoming Batman. And that's the first hour of, of, uh, of Batman Begins. So that level of, it's not saying this is those issues of those comics on the screen, but they've cherry-picked the best. There's a, there's a respect and an understanding of what, of what the best of the source material is, and, and those movies bring that to the fore. And whether you're a fan and you appreciate that because you, you, you know the comics, or if you're not a fan, I mean, it's, it's a wealth of material. Why wouldn't you mind it? These comics have been published for more than 70 years. They've got to have got something right. So it would be remiss of any filmmaker not to cherry-pick from the best of the X-Men series, the Spider-Man series, the Bat- Superman series, the Batman. Of course, uh, and from not mistaken, I'm pretty sure Ra's al Ghul is actually a creation of Denny O'Neill. 
I think he was the one who first created them. I know back then, I mean, even to this day, everything is still DC. It's their material, but I'm, but he created the character. And that is probably when you think about it, because it obviously makes a difference for all three films. Well, the first and the third film, Mm -hmm. that story, you know, that concept comes back in the third film, the, the, you know, the, the backstory there. And it's, it's clearly, and the, and the comic book fans are going to know that where in the first Batman film, the 89 Batman film, except for the Joker, that's it. And even then the Joker there. It just—it's a completely different type of Joker, and 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 everybody made a big deal about uh, Nicholson's performance, but really, it's over the top as many of his performances are right from the very beginning. Where Heath Ledger's Joker, obviously, there's more to it than than just somebody wearing a bunch, you know, with a strange look and and and, and everything like that. I mean, certainly uh, Nicholson's Joker was an extension of his celebrity persona. You know, that's as though he was front row of the Oscars uh, laughing at Billy Crystal's jokes. That's what we visualize when we think of, of Jack Nicholson. His Joker was, was a million, wasn't was a million miles removed from that. Whereas it's hard to see you know, young, blonde, Australian Heath Ledger in uh, his Joker. The performance is so immersive and, uh, and, and so uh, successful because it, he's not, he inhabits that role in a way that perhaps Nicholson never did. But Nicholson's in Nicholson, so he brings that sort of star power to it. Yeah, but it's Jack Nicholson as the Joker. Instead of Heath Ledger, who was, who, for whatever, uh, he clearly let himself get involved, become the character. And I mean, you can see the difference. I mean, uh, it's just an interest, just such a different look at yeah. the same character you know at a character who's supposedly the same but you're right i think it i, I think much of it though goes back to uh, story and you know s- source material um there's less of because they don't really draw on anything for the joker in the in this 89 batman no we not that um the joker as we saw heath ledger presented him ever none of those you know that, but it was the more obvious Joker thing—the concept that the Joker would blow up a hospital and never even think twice about it. And and yeah. that, well, well, stylistically, I mean, the look of the character was probably a break from what people were familiar with from the comics. This mm-hmm. is the Ledger version, but the 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 actions of the character, the personality, the traits were very much in keeping, particularly with uh, the Killing Joke, Alan Moore's origin mm-hmm. story of sorts. For, for the Joker, where it, it talks about his origin being having multiple origins. There's no one set origin for the Joker. And also how one bad day could really change someone's life and make them much like the Joker. He tries to make that happen for both Batman and Harvey Dent to show to them that one bad day can make them just as sadistic as he is. And you know the, the victory of sorts is not the, the physical victory, because Batman was always going to be able to take the Joker in a fist fight, but the moral victory when the people of Gotham do not give in to some of his games and they show that there's a kind of a decency there that he didn't account for. So we've we've been talking a lot about specifics, but let's back up a little bit and talk a little bit more about how you were able to pull the book together. You've already mentioned that you had some you had interviews with Denny O'Neill and, and other people, but um, but let's talk a little bit more about some of the people that you were able to talk to related to this project and and 
how first off, how did you make contact so that you were able to talk to these folks who clearly were important not only to the films but also to the comics themselves? I'm thinking of people like Paul Levitz, who, uh, when I was reading comic books again, which would have been around the time of the uh, the '89 Batman movie, was was very important to DC Comics and and going forward. But some of the other folks who you want to talk a little bit about some of the people you were able to talk to and how you got into contact with them in the first place. There's all sorts of different uh, people I've spoken to and I contacted them in all sorts of different ways. Uh, Some of them would be filmmakers. So, for instance, I spoke to Evan Goldberg, who is the co-writer with Seth Rogen on many of his comedies, uh, particularly, uh, you know, for this book, uh, films like The Green Hornet. He's a long-time comic book fan and he's now working with Seth Rogen on the TV series of, of The Preacher. And he was just coming to Ireland, and I uh, went to his talk, and I said, did you want to go for a drink after? We ended up going for several. We talked for hours, and I got some really great insights from him. Uh, other people like uh, Paul Levitz, uh, I, I, I was going to go to WonderCon in Anaheim. I was going to go try and interview as many people as possible. A lot of these guys are on Twitter, so you can send them tweets, and I say, I see you're giving this panel at this hour. Do you want to meet up for half an hour to an hour afterwards? And that worked quite well. Others I talked to through their production company. So, for instance, Michael E. Uslan, who was the executive producer of the 1989 Batman film and all the subsequent Batman films, I was able to contact him through his, his production company and set up an interview. Uh, and all, there's all sorts of people. I interviewed Joe Kelly, who was the longtime writer of Deadpool. He's also one of the people at Man of Action, so he's a co-creator of Ben 10, for instance. So I, I got him through through Twitter. There is uh, some really interesting uh, people like Scott Mitchell Rosenberg who wrote Cowboys and Aliens but he was also the head of Platinum Comics and so he's worked to make sure a lot of their material like uh, Men in Black and Cowboys and Aliens made it to the screen and there's a whole host Steve Niles who uh, was really interesting. Steve Niles was the writer of 30 Days of Night, the comic book and he talked about how he tried to pitch as a screenplay for years at Hollywood and nobody kind of could get their head around the idea and the second he came in with it as a comic, uh, it got picked up for production. And the comics work really well as sort of as a visual guide for Hollywood executives. Uh, you, you might say imagination-deprived Hollywood executives who can't imagine based on an outline or a treatment or a screenplay what the film would look like. We give them a 30-page comic they can come through. Suddenly they can imagine it on the screen. So that was his avenue into Hollywood. He talks about you know the changing of the guard. Uh, I mean... I, also very important was to talk to uh, people who were just involved in comics themselves and how they've dealt with that transition. So Tom Brevoort, who is the senior vice president of publishing in Marvel Comics, so he talked about how do you maintain a modicum of continuity but not conformity with the more widely seen audiovisual versions of the characters when you're running the comic book part of the, the industry. So all these people were, were, were very useful and had different perspectives, different experiences. Uh, some have been at, at the cold face of this process for years, like Michael E. Houston. Some have come to it comparatively recently, but they all offer kind of unique insights. Because you do spend a lot of time, you in fact, you have a whole section of your book devoted to making movies the Marvel way. And I think there's no question that even though we've seen some great results from, you know, of other publishers' materials in the films, I mean, 
like you've pointed out, 300 and and some of the other more unusual people probably didn't. In fact, some of the series that people don't even know that they were actually based on comic books. But no question that Marvel has been at the forefront of this, and DC's been playing catch-up. I mean, they're doing okay, but they're not clearly doing as well of the two as far as actually being able to lay a claim to the Marvel way of doing films. And you meant X-Men is obviously the first, but uh, I frankly, and then of course the Spider-Man series, which unfortunately to some people felt that the, as the films went on, weren't as good. And then of course they rebooted it so quickly, theoretically after the first ones. And it, it, it doesn't seem to have gotten it done as well in the long run, but there's no question, though, the, the quote-unquote Marvel Universe that started with Iron Man um, clearly showed that the company Marvel wanted to make movies the right way as far as they were concerned. Yeah, I mean, what I might do is go back to your original question about why X-Men broke through, because I think it's important to remember that X-Men was a great success, but X-Men was symptomatic of wider shifts. Uh, which Marvel then subsequently exploited on a level we hadn't seen before. There are about three or four factors that people point to about why these comic book movies have not became so popular and sustained that popularity. Firstly, people tend to point to the technology, and this works on two fronts. One, the filmmaking technology, the special effects, the digital technology, to be able to realize Spider-Man swinging through a concrete cannon or an actor like Ed Norton or Mark Ruffalo turning into the Hulk. So that's a huge factor. And then also, of course, the technology for the fans. So the fans are able to engage and support and promote these these movies. Sometimes I think the special effects are overrated. Not in that the, that they weren't important. People place undue emphasis on it. Because as far back as the George Reeve 1950s Adventures of Superman series, we've all believed a man could fly. So it's not just that so spe- special effects are important, but they can't be the only factor. Another huge factor is what uh, Scott Mitchell Rosenberg in the book talks about as a change of the guard. Mark Wade, who I also interviewed for the book, also talks about this. It's the idea that when they first went to Hollywood in the, say, the 70s and the 80s and tried to get these movies made, uh, comics were still dismissed as kid stuff, mindless entertainment, not this basis of a feature-length movie. And what happened was, in the mid-1980s, comics gained new credibility. You had the, the triple whammy of Mouse, Watchmen, and uh, uh, The Dark Knight Returns brought a kind of, you know, these books won Pulitzer Prizes, they were on Times bestsellers lists, they got covered by mainstream press. So comic books gained a, a me- measure of credibility with the graphic novel. And the people who read comics in the 80s continued reading comics into their 20s, became long-time readers. And these people moved into more senior roles in Hollywood, became filmmakers themselves, but also importantly became the studio executives that would greenlight those movies. So, you know, so that was a changing of the guard. Also, there was what we conglomerate ownership. There are huge, huge parent companies like Time Warner and Walt Disney that own massive subsidiaries that include comic book companies like DC Comics and Marvel, but also include uh, television uh, broadcasters, film studios, uh, and, and so on. And they look for spreadable content. I mean, you can get a movie maybe out of Pride and Prejudice. Uh, you'll get one out of... Uh, over twist, but you're not going to get a theme park right. You're not going to get a mobile phone app. You're not going to get a, a, a lunchbox. But characters like Spider-Man, Superman, clearly clear iconography, 70 plus years of publication history, those are the ideal spreadable content for this conglomerate business practices. 
And finally, then, a lot of people point to the fact that these movies were most popular in America originally. So even though, say, a film like The Dark Knight was a blockbuster around the world, it made the lion's share of its money in the States. And that's rare. Most movies, most blockbusters, from Pirates of the Caribbean to Star Wars, will make the majority of its money overseas now. But up until about 2009, so the first 10 years of this trend, these movies were still making the majority of their money in America. The Dark Knight was beaten in most countries around the world that year by Mamma Mia. And so you have to say, why do these characters resonate most particularly with their local native audience? And many people pointed to this feeling of nostalgia, uh, and the, the desire for clear-cut heroics, particularly after 9-11 and in the war on terror. So all these factors sort of converged in the early 2000s and to create a perfect storm, an ideal fertile period to release these comic book movies. X-Men was a good movie. I think it would have been a success released at any time. Ditto the first Spider-Man movie. But it was that perfect storm of all those things coming together and these good, better-than-average movies uh, coming out and continuing to break box office records that allowed this trend to become a fully-fledged genre. But it was Marvel uh, that really exploited this, this, this environment. Marvel, of course, a uh, long-time uh, comic book publisher, one of the big two alongside DC Comics. But up until 2009, they lacked the shelter of a conglomerate, a larger pair company. And Time Warner has owned DC Comics since about 1969. So that's why you got a lot of production of Batman movies and animated series and TV shows. And you didn't really have the same volume of production uh, of Marvel because the rights got confused. Different production companies would say, I'm going to make a Spider-Man movie. I'm going to make a Fantastic Four movie. Before you knew it, four different production companies were in court arguing about who had the rights. What happened was, when the rights started to get untangled by Avi Arad, who was a senior executive of Toy Biz, who ultimately became the head of Marvel, he was committed to getting these characters on screen. Because he knew this financial security of not only Toy Biz, but also Marvel, depended on the licensing revenue that would come from the audiovisual versions of these characters. So he started untangling the rights around Spider-Man, started untangling the rights around X-Men. He led the, uh, the early 90s animated series for both those shows, just getting them in the public consciousness in a big way. And he was the executive producer or producer on all those movies. Ultimately, Marvel said, why are we farming out X-Men to 20th Century Fox and Spider-Man to Sony Pictures and Hulk to Universal? Shouldn't we start to make these films ourselves? The problem was, by the time they decided to make the movies themselves, most of their A-list characters, Fantastic Four, Spider-Man, X-Men, were at other studios. So they had to look to what was, at that time, considered second-stringer characters. Characters like Iron Man, Captain America, and Thor. That had never been the basis of feature-length movies, or at least not successful feature-length movies, in the past. And so they came out of the gate with Iron Man. Nobody knew who Iron Man was 10 years ago, but through careful casting and an application of the publishing strategies that they have served them so well uh, for so many years, they've really managed to make a crossover universe, a shared universe, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So, you know, uh, there's allusions in that very first Iron Man movie to S.H.I.E.L.D. Obviously, there's a post-credit sequence with Nick Fury, which makes an explicit reference to the Avengers. A couple of months later, The Incredible Hulk comes out as a cameo from... Uh, Robert Downey Jr. as Tony Stark. And even people who've never read comics could understand that this was a larger universe with greater depth. And they wanted to get involved. And they were beginning to wonder what would happen when these characters would finally all meet together on, on, on screen. And it ended up with the you know, blockbuster success 
record-breaking success of Avengers in 2012. And What's interesting is they've been able, one of the things that's that's worked out is that they've been able to keep the quality going. I mean, into the second phase where Avengers ended the first phase, well, they then moved forward into the second phase and have been was able to to keep overall. I mean, like you pointed out, I mean, Captain America, um, um, Iron Man, Thor. Like you say, these were com- these were not characters that the average person would have, the average non-comic book fan would have yeah. even known of, and yet uh, they were drawn in because the films were so well made and so well produced, and 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 there was a clearly there was a decision decisions made as to how they were all going to interact with each other, even with different film company, you know, producers and directors from film to film. And what's interesting is, so you have a film like Ant Ad- Man. Who would have thought 10 years ago that there would be a blockbuster movie based on Ant-Man? Now, yes, it wasn't as successful as some of the the main heroes, as successful as Captain America was, in fact. But people are not necessarily going to see Ant-Man. They're going to see the next Marvel movie. The Marvel brand, that familiar red logo, has as much cachet now as any one of those individual heroes. In fact, it has more cachet, I would say. And people know that Marvel, much like Pixar, is synonymous with quality, a certain type of experience that they couldn't get anywhere else. And so when they see the, that logo or they see it before the trailers or the teasers or on the poster, they want to check out Guardians of the Galaxy, Ant-Man, like Rocket Raccoon and Groot. These are characters that were little known even inside the comic community, and now they're fan favorites. Not just fan favorites, they're favorites more generally. People dress up as them for Halloween. They get toys of them and put them on their desk at work. Uh, it's testament to the Marvel model. And the Marvel model is this kind of idea of embracing a shared continuity. It took DC Comics much longer to embrace the fact that their heroes collectively inhabited a shared universe, and also the fact that something that would happen in one issue would have an effect in subsequent issues. They preferred to keep the characters separate uh, and keep their the stories separate, whereas Marvel embraced continuity under the kind of the reign of Stan Lee in the 1960s when he created all those great heroes like Fantastic Four, Spider-Man, Daredevil, The Avengers. He would have Matt Murdock, the lawyer, who sometimes, you know, he dresses up as Daredevil, but he would also be the lawyer for The Fantastic Four. Spider-Man, in his first official issue, tries to join The Fantastic Four, you know, so the characters would reappear. And the goodwill for one successful group of characters would, in many cases, continue to the related characters in other books. So it's been a very successful model for them. I mean, the fear, of course, is that it becomes too dense. The continuity becomes impenetrable for newcomers. And the people start to feel, oh, I can't go see the, the newest Avengers movie because I haven't seen all the previous movies yet. And the, and the fear, of course, then is that much like the comic industry itself, that it only plays for those most, the most avid, enthusiastic consumers. So that is the great risk. But for the moment, they seem to avoid it. I know when I started rereading comics again, X-Men, I just never went near it because... At that point, it was everybody said, you know, it was so involved and that the continuity was so convoluted that if you didn't at least because it was around that time in the 87 or 88 when DC decided to reboot Superman uh, and then to an extent did some rebooting in other areas not too long after their crisis on Infinite Earth that they they made a conscious effort to try to try to draw people in. Who maybe hadn't read him for a long time, and, and of course Marvel um, 
has done different things similar to that, but uh, and I don't know how successful he's in because obviously DC rebooted again not that you know a couple years ago, and and so there's a there's some of that going on. But in the films, like you say, you've got to keep it careful and and as far as not making it so involved. But um, it's interesting though that films like Fantastic Four has I mean the characters like Fantastic Four that have been total bombs in the theater. I mean, they've just not been able to do anything with Fantastic Four so far. Well, it is, yeah, it's interesting to see the films that succeed and the films that fail, and it's rarely has anything to do with their success on the page. So the most popular characters on screen are not the most popular characters uh, in the books. I mean, Iron Man still isn't a high-selling book, nor is Captain America, but it's uh, the most popular movies of the Marvel suite. So it, it, it speaks to the fact that there is something about these characters that you can extend for a, a, a non-reader audience. Uh, Tony Stark is a bit of the James Bond about him, but he's, you know, he's a bit more playful. Uh, there's a bit of Tom Clancy about Captain America, particularly in The Winter Soldier. So they find clever ways of extending the audience. What's also interesting about Marvel, and when I talk about you know, how to adapt comics in Marvel way, it's a slight parody. Well, it's not a parody. It's a it's a, 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 an explicit reference to uh, a guy that was produced by Stanley and Sal Buscema uh, back in the late seventies. It was a drawing guide for, for, mm-hmm. for fans and kids on how to draw the comic right. books. Uh, this is how you draw Spider-Man. This is how you draw Fantastic Four. This is how you draw Hulk. And the reason I use that 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 kind of tag is to talk about how there is a specific style that is found in all the Marvel movies, but isn't exclusive to the Marvel movies, that I would call the kind of the comic book movie aesthetic. And this is one of the things I use to make the argument that there is a distinct genre here. In the same way that a musical looks a certain way with its technicolor and its you know long shots, in the same way that a film noir with its deep, dark, expressionistic shadows has a specific and distinctive aesthetic. There is a comic book movie aesthetic, and it includes everything from Bright, bright splashes of primary color, even in something like Sin City, which is ostensibly black and white, you have those big splashes of reds and blues and, uh, and yellows. And, uh, you know, it can include things like a, a very careful use of slow motion. We think of bullet time, that slow motion technique that was popularized by the Matrix, uh, where the camera seems to move uh, as around the characters, they move in extreme slow motion. Well, the Wachowskis who made the Matrix described that as an attempt to mirror the limitless discourse time we have when we open a comic book. I can spend a second or I can spend an hour looking at a particular comic book panel, particularly an elaborate comic book panel like a a fight sequence. I might want to pour over for a little longer. And true bullet time, the Wachowskis, who are heavily influenced by comics, particularly Frank Miller, Jeff Darrell, wanted to create a semblance of that in cinema. And many, many movies have borrowed that bullet time technique, none more so than comic book movies. Think of any film by uh, Zack Snyder, Watchmen, his recent Man of Steel movie, filled with these sort of slow motion moments that crystallize in time, an image that would otherwise be rendered in a splash page in a comic. So it's all these kind of you know aesthetics. It's choice of camera angles, it's choice of composition, uh, that all seem to be, once would have been dismissed as comic booky, but now are aspired to by filmmakers who want to infuse otherwise uh, you know, dull scenes with a kind of a, an energy, a dynamism that we once associated with comic books that is now becoming commonplace in cinema, particularly found in this comic book movie genre. And the comic book movie genre is not confined to movies uh, based on comics. There are a lot of films that are quote-unquote original, 
don't have a recognized comic book source material, but want to be affiliated with this now popular genre. Think of movies like uh, Jumper. Think of movies like I Am Number Four. Think of movies like even Max Payne. Although these were based in young adult novels or based on video games, they tried to be affiliated with this fledgling comic book movie genre and adopt elements of that particular style. Uh, because it's become so popular, you want to be associated with this genre. And similarly, there are a lot of comic book adaptations that don't want to be seen as comic book movies. Think back to 2003 when Road to Perdition was released, the gangster movie with Tom Hanks directed by Sam Mendes. They actually dropped the word graphic from the based on the graphic novel by Max Adam Collins because they didn't want uh, people to associate with comic books with back then. Comic books was a dirty word. Now, of course, comic books is a good thing, and everyone wants to know it's based on a comic book. But, you know, so there are some movies that are based on comics that don't fall in that larger comic book movie genre. Equally, there are quote unquote original movies that aren't based on comics that heavily want to be affiliated with that genre. So it's broader than any comic book adaptation, but it's not limited to comic book adaptations. Well, and the other thing I've seen is at what I'm seeing now is not only are we talking about films, which of course is the is is the the basis of the book of what you're saying in in, in show, but now we're starting to see it more and more going into television. We've now got Marvel and DC both making inroads and actual having success, at least in the states. I'm not sure how much of what they're doing is making it to other parts of the world, but Marvel even Marvel Agents of Shield has clearly become popular enough that it's now supporting it and of course then we had the offshoot of captain america uh with agent carter which was interesting because that story pretty much disappeared when when at the end of that film that was the end of that storyline and and which was unfortunate because it was clearly unfinished and it was sort of nice to be able to come back to a character that clearly people i'm sure liked but now we we can we can bring her back and 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 actually use the same actress and 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 move forward, and of course DC now has you know between Arrow and then the Flash and this year and then Gotham last year and now of course this year they're going to uh, um, Supergirl. So uh, clearly the, the the studios have figured out that the next or, you know the publishers have said okay we need we need to make inroads with television now to the extent where Marvel is is tying, is purposely tying the TV shows into the films. It's an example of what we call transmedia storytelling, which is a comparatively recent phenomenon. The Matrix sequels tried it, whereby there was a video game called Edge of the Matrix, and there was a series of animated shorts called The Animatrix. And when you watch them all or play them all together, you got a much larger narrative. It was a larger coherent narrative. And so that is really what the Marvel... I mean, the Marvel Cinematic Universe is now a misnomer. The term cinematic should be taken out of it because it now extends across uh, film, TV, video games, and there are tie-in comic books that fill in gaps in the stories and service prequels. So this Marvel Cinematic Universe story is now transmedia. It's across multiple media forms. And this is possible today for a number of reasons. One, that conglomerate ownership I talked about. So conglomerate Walt Disney bought Marvel in 2009. So even though Marvel Studios is ostensibly its own entity under Walt Disney, they still look for synergistic relationships. So ABC, the broadcaster owned by 
Walt Disney, of course, is the broadcaster of Agent Carter and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. So it's a way to have a mutually beneficial relationship between your subsidiaries. Similarly, Disney XD, the animated, uh, or the kids uh, network, will show the animated series of Avengers, Arts Mightiest Heroes, or the new Guardians of the Galaxy animated series. These synergistic relationships, of course, all benefit the bottom line of the larger parent company, the Walt Disney Company. So that's, so for that reason, we started seeing these characters being spread across multiple media forms. Uh, similarly, what this kind of kind of leads us to is that they become kind of much larger franchises, and there are more entry points into the series. And people often ask me, they say, "Oh, Avengers Two did not make quite as much money as Avengers One. Does that mean this genre is dying?" And inevitably, uh, there will be a fallow period. Not every genre can maintain peak of popularity forever. But the thing is, now these characters become so embedded into media conglomerate practices, that even if the movies aren't made as frequently or aren't as successful as they are now, which is inevitable, perhaps the TV will take over, and that will become the driving platform for these characters in the way that comics were 20 years ago. So it will be Netflix shows like Daredevil, Batman shows like Gotham, and uh, shows like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. That will be the, the one that draws in the largest audience and not necessarily be the movies. The point be, or maybe be video games like uh, Arkham Asylum, the point being that these characters are ideal spreadable content for an era of industrial and technological convergence. So even if one platform isn't as successful as it once was, in the way that comics are not as successful as they once were, these characters are so embedded in the sort of mechanics of media today that they'll still always be popular somewhere. And of course, as you pointing, as you mentioned before about it doesn't even need to be a comic book subject anymore it doesn't have to be based on a comic book because clearly even though lucasfilm did quite a bit of this with star wars previously disney is or disney's taking it to a whole new level already i mean when you think about the number of uh, offshoot films that are already in production or pre-production plus the tv shows that they've continued in in I mean, and not that obviously the cartoons were on for a while, but now that's becoming even more popular with with the uh, the Star Wars Rebels and and of course the video games are now. There's nothing more exciting to a Star Wars fan than being told, "Well, we're going to come up with this new video game and and publicizing it like you would publicize a film, where you have prequels and you have trailers for a video game." Yeah, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, perfected the transmedia practices that others had attempted earlier, uh, particularly The Matrix, which was sort of a false dawn for transmedia uh, franchises. The Marvel Cinematic Universe has set a new template, and everyone is trying to replicate that. So while there has been transmedia efforts in and around uh, Star Wars in the past, it wasn't cohesive. People talk about the extended universe, but it never became canon. And now it's all going to be thrown out ahead of the sequels. What you have now is co-creation. This is where all the different subsidiaries and the, the filmmakers, the television writers, the, broad, the people designing the team works come together to work under a singular goal so that they ensure that there is a consistency and a continuity across that. So Star Wars Rebels TV series is in continuity with the new upcoming movies. And there will be, uh, and the new Disney theme park rides will also tie into that. There won't be uh, people going off, coming up with their own uh, variations that don't get recognized as canon. And that compels the reader, audience member, video game player to consume, to consume multiple uh, versions, which of course is uh, no bad news for the studios and production companies that are 
responsible and, and profiting from these transmedia franchises. I think uh, I'm I'm one of those folks who watches film trailers. Of course, these days movies have told us you don't leave. I'm not trailers. Uh, credits. Of course, we've been told now it's not a good idea to leave the theater before the credits have rolled. I mean, Marvel yes. put that you know going back to the third X Men movie and then of course the, the the current ones, all the current movies you don't leave until the credits are done. But all the Marvel movies I've noticed, and particularly the ones that are the Marvel the the quote unquote continuity movies there is at the end there's a a panel of of uh, marvel creators writers artists and so on that they do have a panel whose job it is one of their jobs is to sit and 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 consider that whole continuity aspect and forgot their official name but they're they're listed there at the end we're we're moving towards a model not unlike television where there's a showrunner and in a writer's room so in most television shows even the most talented showrunner, creator of the show, writer of the show, couldn't write every episode. So you have figures like Shonda Rhimes on Grey's Anatomy and Scandal or uh, Matt Weiner on Mad Men, who conceived of the characters, write certain episodes uh, and oversee it. But then there were individual creators who come in and write individual episodes or direct certain episodes. And so there's a lot of franchises moving towards that model. So you describe, you know, different people who would be on the the Marvel panel people, you know, like Joe Casada, the editor of Marvel, and, and others would be kind of like a brain trust. And uh, Paramount has gone through a similar process trying to figure out their Transformers franchise. So obviously the Transformers films were fairly successful at the box office, if not with critics. And there was, how are, were they going to exploit the franchise in a transmedia way? So they got the director, or not the director, rather, the writer of Batman and Robin, of all people, Akira Gold. <laughs> to head up the, a writer's room for two weeks to conceive of the next steps for the Transformers franchise for Paramount. And a lot of bright people were brought into that room, like Robert Kirkman, who writes The Walking Dead, Stephen S.K. the Knight, who would have been responsible for Spartacus in the first season of Daredevil. And they all conceived of the next steps for this franchise, including a new film in the series, but also an animated prequel to the series. So again, everyone's trying to replicate the Marvel model, but the Marvel model is not a cinematic model. It goes back to the collaborative authorship of uh, comics, back when Stan Lee was sort of the overriding intelligence on the Marvel comics. But of course he couldn't write every comic, and he didn't draw any of them. So there were a lot of really talented people working under his larger vision, but he set the sort of the mood and the tone and the, the, the broader direction for that uh, Marvel Comics universe. And when you think about the number of comics that were produced by Marvel and also DC, to maintain that level of continuity and consistency is remarkable. So comics really have a lot to teach us about that kind of collaborative authorship. And Marvel brought those practices to cinema and really made them work, and now others are catching on. And, of course, it, it allows me to mention that I actually know or knew, I haven't talked to him in many, many years, Brian Michael Bendis, who's, of course, very important for Marvel these days. And I remember him when he was a struggling artist uh, and writer, comic book writer and artist, and working at a small comic book store in downtown Cleveland, which is where I met him. And that's where, of course, that's where a lot of comic book professionals started, working in the stores. I think it goes back to your point is that, uh, so many of the folks have started, you know, that's the they lived with it. That was their life. And it's led to their willingness to consider it as an important genre rather than as something that you do 
um, just to do it. There's a very thin line between a comic fan and a comic professional. I would say that that's true of many industries now in this digital age in which you can go out with a camera and shoot stuff and edit it with high-end software and distribute it online. But even in pre-digital times, comics allowed for the passage from fan to pro much more easily than other established media. You could write some letters, paid, some letters, and they'd end up in the column, which would become a letter hack. That was the term used. So you become a kind of a, a super fan. And many of those super fans use their close affiliation with the industry, including Paul Levitt, who I interviewed for this book. He became uh, he was a fanzine editor, who ultimately became the president of DC Comics. Mm-hmm. The comics allowed that sort of passage, that the kind of easy back and forth between fan and, uh, and producer. And those fans, when the films were made, expected that level of interactivity with the filmmakers, which is why they were sort of put out when they saw the Burton and Joel Schumacher films and why they've been so enthusiastic and so vocal in trying to support films that they do like, like The Dark Knight, like Marvel Cinematic Universe, even films like 300. I mean, 300 was an unknown property for many people. Even in the comics, I don't think it ever sold more than 45,000. And they, they really got behind it. They pushed it on social media. And so that kind of active fan base, uh, I mean, what studio wouldn't want uh, an unlimited press corps, a, a free uh, you know, press division, media savvy, working around the clock to promote their products? Well, and having the name Frank Miller attached to it doesn't hurt either for the comic no. book fans. Yeah, but for the longest time, though, Frank Miller's name wouldn't have been attached to these things. Frank Miller went to Hollywood in the 80s initially. He wrote the Robocop sequels and had an awful experience. Mm-hmm. And then he came back in the mid-2000s uh, when his work started getting adapted, Sin City obviously being the key example, where he was not only credited with his name above the title of Frank Miller's Sin City, but he also became the co-director. But think about that. In 20 short years, the transition from being totally treated badly in Hollywood to having your name above the title. Before the kind of authors that would have name above their title would be William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. A comic book creator, his name above the title. What's more, he's also the co-director. What's more, you're going to give him an opportunity to direct the film himself. This shows that seismic shift, that changing of the guard that was really so instrumental in uh, making this not just a, a fly-by-night couple of films that were successful, but the most successful genre of the past 15 years in Hollywood filmmaking. Well, we've been going for more than an hour, and I just feel like I could just keep going, but I really do want to make sure I give you a chance. Uh, what are, you, are, are there any specific projects you're working on now, or are you still doing a great, going to continue to work in this overall? Um, I'm doing, on the back of the book, a few people have asked me to contribute chapters to collections they're working on. So I have a few about uh, coming up. I've, I'm working on one about the early 90s animated series, uh, particularly Spider-Man and X-Men, and how they kind of set the template for the Marvel uh, films to follow. And a few other ones I'm working on about comic book adaptations of comic book movies which is kind of a very weird merchandising thing where the comic book movie like Batman or Hulk would be adapted back to a comic, which are very strange, but you know, they're interesting. <laughs> but I'm, I'm not going to be working on comics. Uh, my main project coming up, actually, that's not true. I have a big project on comics <laughs> coming up because uh, we're working with the Australian Centre for the Moving Image here in Melbourne to design a superheroes exhibition 
probably be 2018 before we we see it, but uh, there'll be a series of projects in the lead up to that, mini symposiums and things like that. I think comics will always be, and superheroes will always be an aspect of my research, but my new research project is new media, aging and migration. I'm looking about how older migrants who moved before the availability of digital technologies make use of social media, if they do at all, and how that compares to their earlier practices. Whereas before they would have relied on letters and occasional phone calls, now the kind of daily contact that's available to them, how that changes the kind of the experiences, the integration to where they've moved to, as well as their experiences from home. Well, anyway, so it like I say, this has been a, a really great discussion. I think the book you clearly are able to present a lot of information in a way, way that clearly shows what your what your point was or is, and and it and you, you did a great job of proving it. Uh, the fact that you were able to have so many professionals, both film industry and comic book industries, to talk to as part of it. All I can say is that I this book, to me, transcends the quote-unquote uh, education or academic press, even though it is an academic press book. And I hope uh, I will, hopefully people are continuing to look at it as, as a, just as a great book to read and much to learn from. So I really do appreciate your time. And, and, and as I say, I, we could have gone on, on and on. I could have, I don't know about you, I, but I could have gone I on and on. Yeah. So it's a lot. Of fun, but I mean, the book is quite long. It's over 200 pages. So there's a lot in there, but as you quite rightly say, it's pitched in a way that the, the scholar will get a lot out of it. But I think also the enthusiast, uh, will will find it quite an easy read and hopefully at times quite very interesting and fun read. I think we've become, uh, as I think the concept of being in the golden age of academic publishing in a way, because now topics, subject matter, we're not tied to to traditional um, subjects anymore. We can talk about popular culture or media culture as at an academic level and never have to worry about uh, having to prove. That they were that they're worth talking about. Uh, I've, a lot of the people I've talked to, both on an academic and non-academic, uh, a lot of it is what we would call popular culture, and I just think it's great that that so many authors are having success um, putting out books and uh, on these kind of topics because they're very interesting by themselves, and I think it maybe helps other people who aren't necessarily interested in the academic aspect of it. So so anyway, I appreciate your time and hopefully sometime, who knows, we could do a part two on this some point in the future, but uh, we'll see what other kinds of things you come out with and maybe we'll talk again about something else. But really, it's a great book and I'm glad we finally got a chance to talk about it. I hope you enjoyed my talk with Liam. His book definitely is of interest to both academics and film fanatics. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more new books in film.